Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No the following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for Thursday, April 6th, the Crossing Many Lines edition. I'm Emily Bazelon, staff writer at The New York Times Magazine, and today I am taking over from David Plotz because we are having a big week of switcheroo in which David went over to the Slate Culture Gab Fest, and we are very happy to welcome Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic from the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Hey, Dana. Hey, can I just say that this switcheroo was initially my idea, or at least some version of it? I just, because the news has gotten so so political and cultural mixed together and that we're all talking about politics all the time, I had suggested, oh, why don't we do some kind of swap? That would be great. And now here I am having to be put in front of the felt-colored <laughs> covered table and asked about politics. Now so. here you are, our beloved guinea pig. And we are also here with John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation, who is in D.C. Dana and I are in Brooklyn. Hey, John. Hi. And I want to tell you about a bunch of live podcast shows that um, Slate and Panoply have put together for the summer. If you're in D.C. or New York, and actually if you're out west this summer, too. The Culture Fest has um, a show or two. We have a couple of shows in D.C. and also in Denver, Double X, the Trump cast, and Represent. So go to Slate.com slash live, and a full schedule will unfurl before you. And we would love to see you at one or two or three or four or five shows this summer. Okay, on this week's show, we have three topics. We're going to start with the appointment of Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court and the end of the filibuster for SCOTUS appointments. That is all unrolling before our eyes um, today on Thursday, and I guess we'll keep going into tomorrow. And then we want to discuss Trump's approach to human rights, his response to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's apparent terrible nerve gas attack against his own citizens in Syria. Trump has also been courting President Sisi of Egypt, despite his authoritarian crackdown on dissidents. And there are other signs that a more transactional foreign policy era is dawning. And last, the many tentacled octopus of business ties and potential conflicts among the president's people. We're especially interested in digging into Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, who we learned this week will continue to reap the benefits of at least $740 million worth of real estate and investment business ventures that would appear to be affected by decisions they could influence in government. And finally, we will have Cocktail Chatter and Slate Plus. And in honor of Dana, we are going to talk for Slate Plus about our favorite movie picks for the Trump era. So stick around for that. Okay, Republicans are about to get their dearest love of the Trump presidency into the Supreme Court. Judge Neil Gorsuch will presumably be confirmed by the time you listen to this or shortly after. The Democrats have decided to filibuster the Gorsuch nomination. And so 
what we're going to see is 40 or more Democrats voting against him. That means that he will not get to what's called cloture. He will not get the 60 votes to get the up and down vote on the floor. That's the actual confirmation vote. And so after the Democrats filibuster his nomination, all signs point to the Republicans detonating the nuclear option, as it's called, and ending the filibuster for Supreme Court appointments. A lot of senators seem to have misgivings about this, and yet it just seems like we're on this march and that is where it's going to end. So, John, do you think that this is just pointless? Like the Democrats know they're not going to stop Gorsuch. So why are they bothering? And do you feel like this is a sad loss of an important Senate tradition? Yes. I think. Well, let's go to the second one first. Usually, or in the past, when this has been threatened over various times during uh, the Senate's history, there have been emergency efforts by the cooler heads in both parties to save this from happening. And then there are deals made and the nuclear option is averted. It's one of those uh, threats that is made in order to get um, an institution to kind of to break to break the ice flow and get things moving again. It's um, it's not supposed to go all the way through. And what's notable here is that it's going all the way through with no backroom efforts. It's just going to happen. And I think what it basically is, and you can mark the start point on your calendar wherever you want it. You can go back uh, to denying Merrick Garland even a hearing. You can go back to the Senate blockage of Bush appointees. You can go back to Bork. You can go back to the 17th Amendment when you uh, started having direct election of uh, senators if you want. But wherever you go, this is a this is a big deal because it's not only – they don't change rules like this very often in the Senate. It is a better proof that despite ourselves, and that includes both everybody in the Senate but also everybody in politics, there's a structure of things and a structure of partisanship that has taken over that causes people – to be basically completely beholden to the structure and unable to break out from it. That's terrible because that's what's making politics so partisan. Uh, and this is a bad situation in both places. I don't think Chuck Schumer really is helping some of it. And this is based on interviews with senators. So I'm not just making this up. But there are Democratic oh, senators good. who are going to – there are Democratic senators here who are going to have to vote to try and maintain the filibuster. Who would rather not? They think Gorsuch is, sure, he's a conservative. Sure, he, they don't agree with his opinions, but, you know, they believe that a president has the right to do this and that the Senate should confirm him. Now, they understand Garland and all of that, but they also understand they don't have the 60 votes. So given their political position for some of these senators in their homes, uh, home states, it would be better for them if they could vote for Gorsuch. But the groups in their states are putting too much pressure on them, so they can't do that. Well, Mitch McConnell had the same pressure from groups, both in this specific moment, but also in blocking uh, Garland. Um, and so you have a situation in which senators basically say neither party can tell their groups no. And so the groups, which is to say the grassroots and the constituency groups that raise money off of this kind of thing and put pressures on lawmakers, are in more control of both parties than they ever have been. And that's the structure that makes the situation one in which you know, neither side can get out of it and in which something will break. And in a time of constant breaking norms, it's not good to have another norm break. Because this norm, finally, sorry, this norm forces compromise. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that's being squeezed out of the system. So, Dana, the base is winning, the base on each side. Polarization is having another, yet another moment in the sunlight. Is there anything else going on here, though? Or is there an advantage to Democrats in standing up against Gorsuch, given the history of Garland, or just given what kind of decisions they think that Gorsuch will make on the Supreme Court? 
Yeah, you know, that's such a tougher question than I would have said even before reading the briefing materials for this podcast. Last week, I listened to you talk about this with with Jamel, and he really had me on his side when he was standing up for the filibuster and saying, even if it is a pure piece of political theater, holding up this norm is really important. And, you know, this the payback element is important, that it is actually important to not let Mitch McConnell get away with what he did to Merrick Garland. The and, sort of fight fire with fire argument. Yeah, like yeah. Jamel had me up on the ramparts waving a flag for that. And then when I started to read about some of the practical implications for actual Democratic policy goals for blowing blowing everything on this particular filibuster. Well, are you talking now about the filibuster just for the Supreme Court? Because as far as we know, it's going to hold for legislation. I don't think we, right, John? We're not really worried about that yet. We are. You oh, mean worried are. about losing the 60? Yeah, we are um, For legislation, about, too? For legislation. I was meeting with a Republican senator yesterday uh, who said, yeah, that's going. it's basically happening. They're drawing up the legislation. It's going to happen for, again, for this reason. Next big thing comes in. Democrats try to block it. Republicans feel that pressure from their base, feel the pressure from the House. Think about what's being done on health care, just as a brief moment here. The Republicans are bending over backwards and doing all kinds of things, just as the Democrats did with to pass the Affordable Care Act, in order to get health care squeezed through reconciliation. Why is that important? Because reconciliation needs only a majority vote in the Senate. And the Freedom Caucus that's being coddled by the president is the most conservative part of the Republican constituency. It is wagging the dog. That power that it has is now moving over into Senate business. And so the next time something big is at stake in the Senate, the the groups and the grassroots and all of that, that that inspires and gives power to the Freedom Caucus that got Donald Trump elected will come to bear and force senators to change the rule and have a simple 50 uh, vote victory. Okay, then this is bigger than I realized. I was paying attention to someone. I thought it was Mitch McConnell who said that none of the senators actually favored doing away with the filibuster for legislation. Well, (laughs) he might um, not be giving the most complete version of the picture because obviously (laughs) he doesn't want in this case to say, yes, we are unleashing the hounds of hell. Here's a question for you guys. So I was looking into the background of the filibuster and what is is it that whence do they derive the authority, right, to to, exercise? exercise this nuclear option. And I don't understand in some ways, okay, we're at our most partisan moment, maybe in decades, but why hasn't this happened already? It seems like wasn't the precedent for changing Senate rules, some Supreme Court case from 1892? Seems like everything already would have been taken down to this kind of bare knuckles, simple majority before. The Senate has this tradition of being the more moderate, more slow-moving, more bipartisan body, you know, the famous saucer that cools the teacup. And so the history of the filibuster, right, John, is that it used to only be used a few times in each congressional session. And that was true up, I think, through the 1990s, right? And then, am I right about that? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it became deployed constantly all the time. I mean, the whole tit-for-tat of who did what is a little tedious. But I think that the escalation, like, the, the period in which the filibuster bec- goes from being a rare weapon only pulled out in dire circumstances right. to one that's like routine. I thought the Republicans were responsible for more of the kind of ratcheting up of its use. Well, there's obviously debate about that. Of course. Um, yeah. <laughs> what you count as a filibuster, a lot mm-hmm. of times the threat of a filibuster is sort of raised and then as a result, not used, not employed because the other side does something to avoid it. So it's not counted as a proper filibuster. But I think if you go by the pure numbers, I believe you're right about the Republicans. But again, I want to 
like throw that caveat in and say, I'm not, I don't have those figures in front of me. So, so um, one question I always have with the filibusters. Okay. So it's essentially anti-democratic because it goes from majority rule to this bigger, you know, super majority threshold for passing legislation. And if the Senate does get rid of it for everything, as John's suggesting, we're going to have an experiment in which the party in power that holds the House, the Senate, and the presidency gets to pursue its agenda. And then we find out what that agenda is like to live with the way we would in a parliamentary democracy where one party comes in and controls the government and makes the rules for a while. And then if people don't like it, they can throw that party out. And I I suppose what I wonder is if this could actually be clarifying, because sometimes gridlock and stalemate in Washington means that the more extreme parts of either party's agenda never really get enacted. And that that adds to this sort of like cloudiness of American government where we don't really know who to hold responsible and, and it feels sclerotic. I don't Dana, what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean that would be that would be the argument for, I guess, efficiency of government. But then it also just seems like it could lead to a very sclerotic I don't know, ossification. Can you have a sclerotic ossification? Oh, my God. <laughs> I think a sclerotic ossification is basically just a stone. I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so just imagine a hardened lump of ideology on both sides, right? I mean, it just seems like what, the reason that the, the filibuster is considered, considered to be this sort of gracious old world feature that the Senate has that the House doesn't anymore is because it allows the minority to say, right? It lets the people who are out of power have their Frank Capra moment, right, of of speaking for 15 hours on their unpopular opinion. So it's both anti-democratic and in a way sort of the, in, the, this, in its spirit also preserves something of democracy. I love your take, though, uh, Emily, because it's the one possible sort of bright light in what's otherwise a pretty dark picture. Um, so uh, in other words, it basically puts the ruling party on the hook. Of course, what we don't have in a, in a parliamentary democracy is um, is the ability to vote out. And that's particularly true of the Senate, the Senate being six year terms as opposed to the House. The idea of the House was, OK, if they're closer to the people and the and the grassroots than the Senate, then they can be voted out if they misbehave. The Senate taking a longer view uh, can't be corrected by popular will as fast. It sort of works against the design of the institution. The other thing about the filibuster in a way in which it's a part of the original American design, even though it wasn't a part of the original American design. In fact, actually, just a brief historical aside, I believe it's true that the filibuster arrives in 1917, almost basically 100 years ago mm-hmm. today, when Woodrow Wilson couldn't – can't remember the measure in the, in the lead up to World War One. He was trying to help Europe – was blocked by 12 Republican senators, had no way to stop them. And then they instituted something called Rule 22, which was the beginning of the filibuster. So anyway, a little anniversary has either is either coming up or has just happened. The part of the American system that it protects is the is that the minority has some say that it's not that it can't be railroaded by the majority. And that is something that uh, will be harder uh, to protect the minority rights now after the filibuster disappears on the Supreme Court nominees and then if the second step happens, disappears on legislation. Right. But think, though, about the agendas we're talking here about here. So here's a partial list. The Republicans scrap the filibuster. They can pass large permanent tax cuts. They can do oil drilling in the Arctic. They could pass a national concealed carry gun law. They can pass a health care bill, as you were talking about earlier, that didn't have to cater to Democrats and didn't have to do some of the weird contortionist things that recon- that reconciliation um, would have required. 
Democrats get back into power, they could increase the minimum wage. They could pass gun control. They could up Social Security benefits, do um, Medicare for all. There's like a wish list on either side that involves actual change to our policymaking that it seems out of reach in part because of the filibuster. So I guess, Dana, if you, when you look at those two lists, you probably feel better about one side than the other. But do you feel like trying them both is kind of worthwhile in terms of actually testing these policy ideas? I guess, but the test, I mean, as I understand it, this would be a permanent rule change going forward. Well, and right? they could always change it back if they feel yeah. like, right? I mean, in theory. Right, right. But, like, but change it back knowing that it's, you know, as easily broken right. as before. I mean, once you break the seal, you've broken the seal. Yes. Right. I mean, it's certainly spoken of in the press as if this is it, right? That, that this rule will disappear if if this this path is chosen by the Democrats. I don't know. Now you've got me torn again. I mean, so so maybe we each give it a try. Each side gets its gets its interference free way to try to make its its policy happen. But insofar as that would lead to great reduction of it seems of incentive for bipartisanship, that doesn't seem like a great path going forward. Um, one thing that you when you just ran through that list, Emily, that one obvious downside of your otherwise attractive theory of, you know, making the majority own the majority and you can't you can't keep progress from happening just because of the filibuster. A, uh, lots of conservatives would believe progress should be in air quotes, which is to say that, um, as John Boehner used to say, uh, part of what conservatives want to do is keep legislation from being passed. So just the production, the efficient production of legislation is not an unalloyed good. Second of all is that a lot of the things you mentioned, I mean, tax reform. So let's say that gets passed on a majority basis and then the country hates it and you have a change and then the, the Republicans are not in control and Democrats are. So in a short period of time, businesses that have to rely on that tax reform or Americans who have to rely on health care reform or uh, others who have to rely on whatever was just passed are getting whipsawed around. Yes. That can have real and painful consequences. Now, the possible rejoinder to that would be, OK, let's say it goes awry. Party gets voted out of out of power. Then maybe the changes to whatever the first piece of legislation on tax reform, maybe the changes would be embroidery as opposed to wholesale replacement, except that now you have a majority and your base that controls you is going to want wholesale replacement, as we see with the Affordable Care Act, not simply embroidery to the thing that just was so bad that it voted out whatever party was previously in power. So it seems like you you would have increased whipsawism. Although, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, it's been so interesting to me to watch the Republicans as they try to negotiate within their own party over health care reform surface the very differences and clashes that previously were all framed as a partisan fight. You know, you have the Republican moderates yelling at the House Freedom Caucus and the House Freedom Caucus yelling back that they're like left wing. And suddenly, I mean, part of this is because we have the baseline of Obamacare to start with, and that has changed the whole discussion. But it just seems to me like there's a way in which the party can't pretend that um, all of the problems that it's or at least like its lack of solutions are the fault of the other party. There, and so the party itself perhaps is having at least about health care a more comprehensive and I would argue honest internal debate than we saw before the election. OK, let's wind up there because we just got a really surprising, at least to me, news bulletin. John, what just happened? 
So uh, House uh, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence Chairman Devin Nunes today issued a statement saying he was stepping down from the uh, committee that he's headed and that has been the part of so much crazy activity in the last two weeks. He says that this is the result of several what he calls left-wing activist groups that have filed accusations against him with the Office of Congressional Ethics. He is now going to have Representative Mike Conway with assistance from Trey Gowdy uh, and Tom Rooney take temporary charge of the Russia investigation while the House Ethics Committee looks into the matter. So, huh. uh, what do we think of Conway and Gowdy? But especially uh, you know, Conway. Well, we know in my life. we know of Gowdy, of course, from the Benghazi Committee. Yes. And he's been a very strong advocate for spending as much or more time of the committee's effort on the question of unmasking and leaking, first leaking and then this question of unmasking that that Nunes was at the center of. I think we would expect Trey Gowdy to be the spokesman for the committee because for the reasons you said, probably, which is to say he's more versed in the public role of being head of a controversial committee. The question now, though, is about contacts with the White House, which is the, which is the big thing that Nunes was being criticized for. Uh, what role does this play in that? Trey Gowdy recently criticized the president, actually, for saying what he said about Susan Rice, claiming that she would, had committed potentially criminal acts. Um, with no evidence. Exactly. That was something that Trey Gowdy said that we had not heard anything from Devin Nunes along those kinds of lines with respect to the separation of powers. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GapFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's turn to topic two. So earlier this week, there was just terrible news from Syria. A town in the northwest of Syria was subject to an airstrike. We don't know exactly what kind of nerve gas was used, but more than 100 people died in just terrible circumstances. The apparent culprit is Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Countries around the world condemned the attacks, including the Trump administration, but the Trump administration spent more of its time and words blaming President Obama for setting a red line about chemical attacks and then not doing anything about it when Assad crossed that red line in 2013 with an earlier chemical weapons attack that killed more than a thousand people. I should just footnote that at that time in 2013, Trump tweeted, um, do not attack Syria. So the blaming um, has that uh, attached to it. But 
In any case, we're now at a point where before this terrible attack, the Trump administration dropped the longtime American demand that Assad has to give up power for there to be any political resolution of the war in Syria. Um, now Trump is saying that the chemical attack has changed his view, and he said that the attack crosses many lines beyond a red line without saying anything about what he was going to do about it. Dana, is Trump right that the Obama people deserve a measure of blame for this? And a lot of what's happened unfolds from there. I mean, it seems like that that is a, a real talking point, not just with Trump, but among critiques of the Obama administration while it was happening, right? That his inaction on Syria and the statement of the big red line and then not following forward with it was one of the big foreign policy mistakes of his, his administration. At the same time, it's very easy to see how a president who inherited, you know, a, a country at war ill-advisedly in the Middle East would not want to start one toward the end of his two terms. So I don't think I had a strong feeling at the time about what Obama should have done in Syria. I just don't understand that part of the world well enough. But what seems hypocritical and and more worrisomely just poor policy on Trump's part is that he doesn't seem to be changing anything that Obama did. I mean, there's not any evidence that he wants to make any specific moves against Assad. He seems to be wanting to brandish a saber and at the same time change nothing. So he kind of just seems to be kicking the can down the road at this moment. And when it comes to human rights, not even talking the talk that Obama was at least doing. In fact, I think there was a quote, an anonymous quote from someone in government saying that Trump plan, plans to handle this may not have just been in relation to uh, to, to Syria, but also to Bahrain and other human rights situations that Trump is going to have to deal with, that he was going to, quote, be more discreet in his pursuit of foreign policy in the Middle East, which, in, if you're talking about human rights, seems like the precise opposite of what the American president is supposed to do. Not have a bully pulpit, not set a model for the world or set any examples, but just do some under-the-table dealing. I have also been struggling with this. I mean, it seems like the United States in the Trump era is giving up some of its previous claim to moral authority and not speaking up in the way that we're used to hearing. And Trump is taking this deliberately transactional approach to foreign policy, where he thinks of people like Assad as a potential ally fighting ISIS. And so until this sudden maybe change of heart, following the nerve gas attack, it seemed like Trump was interested in thinking about Assad in those terms, the way he treated um, the president of Egypt, Sisi, this week, having Sisi come, talking about him as extraordinary, someone who's doing a great job. This was language that Obama and I think presidents like George W. Bush would not have used. No mention of the American citizen who's been jailed by Sisi for or the thousands doing of Egyptian good and, dissidents, right? yes, who are in prison. I mean, there's just no question that Sisi has this alarming authoritarian record. But, John, I mean, is it fair to be so <laughs> worried about the loss of American words when American deeds weren't necessarily following? I mean, is there a way in which Trump is just being blunt about recognizing the way our presence around the world had already changed? It was just that President Obama didn't want to say this stuff. Yeah. You got d two different things to look at. One is the specifics of Syria, and the second is the larger human rights uh, approach from the Trump administration, which is being totally rewritten by the response to Syria. So sticking to Syria for just a moment, if, if, if Donald Trump is right and the larger foreign policy consensus in both parties is right, that President Obama really erred when he drew a red line and then didn't follow up uh, on his words. The reason, the reason that's important is the 
some people would say totally elusive or elusive and some people would say totally phony idea of American prestige, which is that America has to do what it says and that the reason it has to do what it says is that then it can say things, send threats and countries react without actually having to follow through on the threat. So it's like the filibuster you threatened it or the nuclear option. So um, that argument is made and there are lots and lots of examples used by countries that had nothing to do with the Middle East that called up their various allies in, in the American government and said after the president didn't back up his red line statement said, oh, I guess we're all on our own now. So if that let's stipulate for a moment that that's the real lesson of the red lines, that you don't say stuff you don't back up. Well, Donald Trump has now, first of all, first of all, you've got to just step aside for the irony of the president whose own UN ambassador said on Sunday on Face the Nation that she basically considers his tweets chatter and the things he says about China, like that it's been raping America, to be um, not really that notable. In other words, essentially, in a wor- in a world where the phrase "words matter" is constantly used, essentially, the UN ambassador was saying, "Don't pay attention to a lot of what the president says." You now have the president standing on a rule that says, "Words matter so uh, much that the president's slip up here on having said the red line," which the New York Times did a great walk back or a look back on how that phrase was used, and it was basically, as I recall it, the president President Obama essentially riffing in the moment, right, and then. Yep. Having to live up to his riff. Anyway, don't be sloppy about words is the is the message. And now you have a president who is setting a new standard for, for sloppiness in foreign policy on words saying you must not violate what you've said. OK, so that's one little irony. But then the second thing is he has now put himself on the hook, said this crosses lots of red lines. The, the U.N. ambassador says if the world won't join us in uh, taking action against Syria, we may go it alone. They have now put themselves out there. They have now done – Maybe not as much as the president uh, did with the red line comment, but when you have a president, Trump, saying one thing and the U.N. ambassador matching that, maybe you could argue they've said more. In other words, it's not just a slip up of one person, but it's now sending an administration message that something is going to be done. If they then retreat from that, they will be missing the lesson they say is at the heart of the Obama red line. So that's all of what's contained right now in Syria. And the other stuff, yes, administrations have to stand up for human rights. It's quite important, but they can't do it without backing it up. And in some cases, it is perfectly reasonable for, and it's uh, a version of, of what would have derisively been called leading from behind, but there are perfectly reasonable reasons to not be out front about human rights, to, to work behind the scenes. The, the case of the American citizen who worked with street children, Aya Hijazi, uh, may be better adjudicated through quiet negotiation and, in fact, the part of that negotiation might be praising the Egyptian president in public. Fine, gives him a certain sense of legitimacy. The Obama administration wouldn't even meet with him. Give him that legitimacy in public and then in exchange for that request privately the release of this American citizen. That is perfectly reasonable, perfectly smart. And what has to be done when you don't have total metaphysical control over the behavior of other nations? Though we don't have any evidence that's actually what's happening. That would just be a good thing to do, right? Well, it would be a good thing to do. And when the administration says they're going to try and work things more quietly, um, that that is uh, presumably what they're trying to do. I mean, they'd be crazy if they weren't. And by the way, remember when um, President Obama was criticized for not working hard enough to get certain American hostages released, the argument the administration would give is, you know, a lot of times 
working to get those hostages released is done in quiet and not with big flashy statements, which put the people who are holding the hostages into a corner and make it tougher to do things than if you're quiet about it. So there is obviously a time for the United States to be the moral leader and speak up and act out. But there are also there's also plenty of humanitarian work that needs to be done without making nations be embarrassed on the on the world stage and therefore not able to to step back. I said, we should finally say in the Middle East, in particular, where the U.S. has a pretty spotty record, um, you know, putting U.S. fingerprints on human rights activity um, makes the U.S. own it in a way that sets people into their corners because of their existing feelings about the United States and its meddling in the in the Middle East in a way that can be totally counterproductive. So I guess I just keep going back to this word transactional. And I suppose also America first. I really like recoil from that slogan given its um, earlier history. But Trump wants to use it. And all of this seems to be framed in terms of American interests. It's as if like the lives and fortunes of people around the world just have sort of dropped out of our calculus. Yeah. Um, yeah. And not only in Trump's language, but in Rex Tillerson's, too. If things like him not showing up for the, the what is it, the rights, annual human rights annual report, report. Mm-hmm. right, which I guess is not completely unprecedented for a secretary of state, but it doesn't send a great message about his dedication to human rights. I guess he wrote a little, you know, prologue or something that was read for him, but it was it was this sort of minimal engagement that he could possibly have shown. Yeah, I mean, it's been very disturbing ever since the campaign. I think this real visceral identification that Trump seems to feel with strongmen, you know, that, that's really across the board. I was I, I was looking at a, a, a quote that he gave to Fox in September during the, the campaign about Sisi, about, about the Egyptian dictator. I don't know. Is Sisi even elected or is he? I mean, he's put in power in yeah. a, in a yeah. one party election. <laughs> right. Um, he says, of Sisi. He took control of Egypt and he really took control of it. And there's just kind of a pleasure, you know, a pleasure in the idea of this this strong man's takeover that this that leaves a really bad taste in one's mouth. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Turning to topic three, I keep um, enjoying the rise of Richard Painter and Norm Eisen. They are the chief ethics lawyers, respectively, for George W. Bush and for Obama. And they are now all over the place in the op-ed pages on radio, kind of being the ethics police for this administration. So this week, they wrote... Quote, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump have so many potential conflicts of interest that if they abide by ethics laws and past White House practices, they won't be able to advise the president on three of his top priorities, trade, tax reform and Wall Street deregulation. So this is at odds with this growing portfolio of Jared Kushner's that has been getting a lot of attention and some um, mockery in the last few weeks. Kushner is supposed to be dealing with China and Mexico and the Middle East, peace in the Middle East and Canada, and also uh, restructuring the government with something called the new <laughs> Office of American Innovation. A lot of post-its on his computer, just really blocking out the screen at this point. Right. But because of the properties he owns, the deals he's still trying to make, or at least his companies are and the loans he's taken out. He has like conflicts of interest all over the place. Dana, what do you think? Are the, are is this 
this couple, the Jared and Ivanka, like juggernaut, they are these beautiful people who kind of appear in a million photographs looking so pristine and kind of princely and queenly, if that makes any sense. And yet they seem to be like treading on this very fine line across a potential chasm. And I just wonder if you think, are they actually going to fall or is someone going to figure out a way to hold them responsible for these potential ethics violations? Or are we just going to see a world in which our norms about ethical behavior in government and conflict and corruption just change? God, I don't know. I mean, I'm afraid that the, the latter is already in, in full swing of happening. It seems like all these ethicists, all these brilliant government ethicists coming out with statements about the Trump administration might as well just be a, a cloud of gnats being being batted away for all of the all of the good it does or all of the indictments and investigations that it's bringing about. I mean, he, talking about Jared and Ivanka, I'm really going to get out of the Dickerson objectivity zone and just start <laughs> spewing some of my own <laughs> intense dislike of this unelected, unexperienced just this this family couple, I mean, it can, coupled with, which we haven't really talked about yet today, but coupled with the uh, kicking off of Steve Bannon from the NSC, which I think must be related to this power struggle between Kushner all and the Bannon that intrigue. you keep reading about, right, and all the jealousies <laughs> of Jared Kushner's power. It just seems like it's all speaking to this real consolidation of the administration around the family. Just the unelected, you know, one member of this family has been elected by a tiny margin while losing the popular vote. Everybody else in his family is just coattailing along for the ride. And they seem to have exactly the same unconcern with ethics or divesting from their personal assets, except in name, as Trump does. Even less of a mandate to, to carry out whatever vague governmental policies they're supposed to be pursuing. The whole thing seems very, very creepy to me. And, and Jared Kushner just seems like someone who is so vastly overwhelmed and underqualified for all the things that he's being called to the table to do. It's really, really hard to imagine how things like the Mideast peace process, for example, is going to make any progress with this 36-year-old realtor in charge of it. John, do you think that the differences between Trump and the way he's constructed his White House are not as like giant as it sometimes appears to the left that, you know, some of this kind of potential for conflict always exists and we're like hyper focused on it right now. I mean, it's hard. I guess the comparison is difficult just to answer my own question <laughs> because the Obama administration had this um, very clean reputation. They seem to sort of pride themselves in like squeaky clean. And now, you know, we have a whole bunch of people who've already been cited in various ways for um, ethics issues. Kellyanne Conway, Christopher Liddell, Bannon, Reince Priebus, Dan Scavino Jr. I have to mention Tom Price. There's another report about him buying pharma stock, even as he was helping to kill a rule that was going to hurt drug companies. I don't know. I just I can't tell whether like some of this always goes on and it just seems like this is a particular cesspool or whether no. this is like really different. Well, you do. what doesn't go on is you don't have a son-in-law and daughter at the center of things. I think um, – and you don't have people coming in with such extraordinary wealth, which um, in the pro-Trump view means – Look, it takes a long time to unwind this stuff. Nobody's nobody really knows how to deal with with holdings that are this large. You can't cordon off everything in the anti-Trump, obviously, case. These conflicts make nothing you do removed from the taint of personal enrichment. And mm -hmm. and even if you're not seeking to enrich yourself, the gravitational pull 
of your previous engagements, there is a gravitational pull there that you maybe not, you know, can't even constantly be looking out for. Or even if you are constantly looking out for it, it's going to like give you twice as much work than if you were just a, uh, a person without these kinds of challenges. So and also, by the way, it creates a constant set of questions for you that you're always having to beat back and answer. I think also it creates tension with the idea that he was talking about as a candidate, that unless you drained the Washington of all these kinds of special inside access arrangements, Washington would never work. So there is tension with his own within his own message. But I, one other point I would make is that there are a lot of people who see Jared Kushner as a force for good, or I should say two other ways force of viewing it. One is a force for moderation. He was a force for moderation in the campaign and then is a force for moderation now in the White House against sort of the, the globalists versus nationalists, I guess. And the nationalists being Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller and the globalists or rationalists being Jared Kushner um, Gary Cohn. and Gary Cohn. So, and as an, then another Republican lawmaker was putting it to me recently, you can call them globalists, rationalists, or you can just call them Democrats, which they used arguably both, right, which they used to be. So that makes some Republicans nervous from that standpoint, from the ideological standpoint. So I think also you have, this is a chaos um, White House, which is to say that its internal arrangement is chaotic, A, and then B, um, it has so understaffed the um, other departments that um, that they can't rely on other departments to do some of or any of the other work because it's even though there are people in those jobs, holdovers and so forth, the team is just not even on the field by any measure of the imagination. White Houses always make the mistake of trying to run things through the White House. And this is something George Shultz advised uh, Trump. Don't run everything through the White House. Treat your cabinet secretaries as your staff because they have broader perspectives. They have staff that can deal with these things. You're not running this, the, the entire federal government through the same seven people. This White House has not yet learned that. The chaos of the moment puts things on Jared Kushner's shoulder. Finally, one point that Jeffrey Goldberg makes, makes, which I think is interesting, is counterintuitive on the lack of experience point when sending Jared Kushner to either deal with Middle East peace or Iraq. His argument is that in the cultures that Jared Kushner would be um, working with, sending a personal family relative, which is redundant, but nevertheless, <laughs> to do your negotiating is a sign of the honor that you are bestowing on the people with whom you're negotiating. And that in they'll words, read it that way. Yes. Like the Chinese, the precisely. people in the Middle East. That he, as Jeffrey says, that he cared enough to send the father of his grandchildren. Um, and so I don't know if that theory has any weight to it, but I like it as a counterpoint to uh, all of the other criticism. It's Although nice it does make Kushner seem like a piece of symbolic ballast rather than an actual negotiating mind who has anything to bring to the table besides. Well, I don't know. It doesn't relative. seek it doesn't seek to do that. It seeks to add weight to whatever else he brings to the table. Well, I, for one, am waiting to see where the scandals unfold, and I'm taking comfort in the fact that the conflict of interest laws in the government do apply to Kushner and to Jared and Ivanka now. And Trump can claim that as president, he doesn't have any conflicts of interest. I think that shows a huge gaping hole in our laws. But these laws do apply to everyone else in the White House. So it will be interesting to see how all of that unfolds. Let's go to cocktail chatter. John, what will you be dreaming about this weekend over whatever drink is in your hand? 
Uh, well, I wish there were a drink in my hand this weekend, but even if there no isn't, drinks. I, uh, well, you can forget that I work on the weekends um, and haven't quite <laughs> gotten to the stage yet where I'm drinking and working. Um, my cocktail chatter is not something so much to be talked about, but is the discovery I've made through my son uh, of Oscar Peterson on YouTube. So the first thing is that my uh, 14-year-old son who's gotten uh, into music, it's this wonderful multi-generational thing that's happening, which is that he started to listen to some of the same music I did. And so then he's – we're having this conversation about music in a way that represents a totally different stage in the relationship. But then I started listening to his playlists, and one of them had a bunch of Oscar Peterson songs on it. His grandfather, who he n- never really got to know well enough, uh, was a huge Oscar Peterson fan. So there's that echo. But he started playing these YouTube videos, and there are two that are really worth watching. One is a seven-minute interview that Dick Cavett did with Oscar Peterson. They're just uh, sitting by the piano, and Peterson is going through all the different musical styles of the various great pianists and jazz and blues pianists. And he's so specific and articulate about what is a essentially a, an emotional thing and a creative thing. And he's fantastic. Dick Cavett reminds you why he was so great. Anyway, that's really good. It's only seven minutes. There's another interview on YouTube with Andre Previn and Oscar Peterson. It's about an hour long, and it's just two pianists talking about the skill and the craft. And even if you don't like um, uh, piano music, it's really it's a really great conversation. So I recommend that to uh, people. That sounds awesome. Dana, what's your chatter for today? Well, I was trying to come up with a chatter for this week that brought cult, politics and culture together in some way that would presumably be of interest both to your listenership and to ours on the Culture Gab Fest. And there happens to be a Netflix three-part show opening this week that I think brings politics and culture together in a really fascinating way. So it's the um, adaptation of Mark Harris's book, Five Came Back, which is a wonderful book about five Hollywood directors um, from the golden age of Hollywood who all had some involvement with World War II. That They were sent by the government to either make propaganda films or documentary films. One of them documented the um, liberation of Dachau. That was George Stevens. So these these five directors are William Wyler, Frank Capra, George Stevens, John Huston, and John Ford. And the book is a really fabulous kind of, it's a way of getting to know their work after the war and the, the work that they're famous for, and also this kind of secret period of their careers when they were working for the U.S. government. But of course, what you don't get in the book is getting to see the movie clips. So this adaptation, I would still recommend reading the book as well, or maybe instead of if you could only do one. But this is a really faithful and well-done adaptation in three parts of, of that series that sort of cuts in between clips of some of the wartime film they made, clips from their later films, interviews with them that survive, and also interviews with contemporary filmmakers who are really knowledgeable and interested in their movies. So Steven Spielberg's company, Amblin Entertainment, is behind this series. And is it a documentary series? It's a documentary, yeah. Cool. It's like a film, sort of a film history documentary. So Spielberg is interviewed at length uh, and knows a lot about, I mean, he's just such a film historian himself, and it's wonderful to hear him on, for example, The Best Years of Our Lives, the great World War II return film by William Wyler. And uh, who else? Guillermo del Toro does some talking. Meryl Streep is the narrator of the whole thing. So, you know, they got some some good A-list, A-list. names. And it's just it's a really fascinating little jaunt through Hollywood history. So five came back a three part series on Netflix. That's my I'm, I guess it's an endorsement rather than a cocktail chatter. But no, no, I'll they chatter can... about it at parties. All right? <laughs> it can double. That sounds great. My cocktail chatter this weekend. So I've been 
watching civil rights issues percolate around the country with a special interest lately. And this week, a couple of things happened I was paying attention to. One was that Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced a review of all of the consent decrees that the Justice Department administers with the nation's police departments. This is a big difference between the Trump administration and the Obama Justice Department. The Obama Justice Department saw these pattern and practice investigations of police departments as a really important way to try to put the energy of the federal government behind reform. And this is based on a law that goes back to the 90s. The Bush administration did these investigations, too. And particularly up for grabs right now are consent decrees the Justice Department negotiated in Baltimore and then issued a big report in Chicago but didn't have time to negotiate an actual agreement and settlement in Chicago. So essentially, Sessions is saying, we might take all of this back. We're not sure we really want to be monitoring police departments. And Sessions couched this in terms of freeing cops to do their best work. But some of the um, police chiefs, particularly in Baltimore, said, wait a second, this is really a gut punch. We've been counting on the Justice Department's support and some funding that sometimes comes with this kind of monitoring to make changes that we really needed to make. So... That is one to watch. And the second happier note of the week was that the Seventh Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals issued a big decision in a case called Hively versus Ivy Tech Community College, in which the court found that sex discrimination in the Civil Rights Act from the 1960s includes discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. This has been a long, elusive idea in the law. Congress has not passed national protections against this form of discrimination in the workplace. And the Seventh Circuit was essentially saying that the meaning of sex in the Civil Rights Act uh, really does cover sexual orientation and, and perhaps has changed over time. At least one of the um, judges, Judge Posner, wrote an opinion that was about a, a real defense of interpreting um, language in a law based on its current meaning and having a kind of response to originalism, the theory that you have to have a meaning frozen in amber at the time the law was written. So if you're interested in various justifications for changing how a text is read and also a defense of sticking with old meanings, there's a dissent in this decision. It was eight to three, and the dissent is by uh, Judge Diane Sykes, who was talked about and still is talked about as a potential Supreme Court nominee for Trump. Anyway, I really recommend these lively dueling opinions in this case. And it could be a really important decision. It's the kind of thing that could go up to the Supreme Court and could really change the law. Okay, that's our show for today. Dana, it was very fun to have you as a special guest. It was an honor. I should just tell you guys that this is the one Slate podcast that I never miss. I cannot process the week's political occurrences without hearing all three of you on them. So thanks for having me on. (laughs) Our pleasure. Thanks, Dana. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The Slate Political Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. Lots of links from Kevin. Our Facebook page, facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed, at Slate Gabfest. And our email address is gabfest at slate.com. For Dana Stevens and John Dickerson, I'm Emily Bazelon. We'll talk to you next week. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.